Alright everybody, welcome to episode number 50 of the Between the Cracks podcast. I am your host Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host Chris. Now this is a very special episode, pal. Not only is it our 50th episode, it is also take 99 of episode 50, bud. Well, we've experienced some technical difficulties, haven't we? Oh, we have. As we said, uh, Chris moved, and then we had to readjust the acoustics to that, and then somebody drove a motorcycle into the living room of the apartment next door, (laughs) and that kind of disrupted our audio. Neither of us picked up on it at the time until uh, we went into the editing process, and then uh, we just said, fuck it. I I guess... uh... We'll try to do it again, and, and if we sound like we're not into the case, that's because we're tired and, yes. of talking about, the, the, about it. We're, we're tired of the lame jokes. They went nowhere the first <laughs> ten takes, so they're not going to go anywhere now. And it's like one of those things, though, even though no one else has heard the joke, you've said it so many times that it just seems <laughs> lame, lamer and lamer. Yes, it's awful. <laughs> but, you know, Chris, we can't let that get us down. We need to dust ourselves off. And hop back on that positivity train, pal, because we're rugged outdoorsmen, right? Everybody knows that about us. Well, unless it's, you know, really cold out or something. Yeah, yes, if it's cold and there's uh, <laughs> hard work involved, we stay out of the way. But but not all is wrong in the world. There are a lot of positive things happening, like our downloads. And I think you remember me saying last week, bud, our show has been downloaded like crazy throughout the Midwest, and it is now making its way up the West Coast. The downloads are out of control, and I don't know what has happened. I would love to know. Uh, did somebody out there give us a shout-out or something? I don't <laughs> For some stupid reason? <laughs> Why would anyone want to do that is the question. And as grateful as we are for the downloads throughout the United States and around the world, but I thought it was important for us to come back to the Northeast, to the tri-state area, because we're New York guys, and we want to cover a case from the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. And that's exactly what we're going to do, because tonight, Chris... We are headed to Newark, New Jersey. More specifically, bud, late 1970s Newark, New Jersey, to discuss the mysterious disappearance of the Clinton Avenue Five. Now, Chris, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you have never heard of the Clinton Avenue Five until we started this case, because I know I hadn't. So this would be the third time I'm hearing about it. The two prior times were the last two days. Mm-hmm. When we tried to record this. But, but prior to that, yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely nothing, right? And that's the craziest thing about this case. It garnered no nationwide attention. I mean, throughout the community of Newark and northern New Jersey, it's a well-known case. But other than that, it's disappeared in time. And what makes that even crazier, Chris, is that, as the name implies, the Clinton Avenue 5, this is the disappearance of not only one or two people... It is the simultaneous disappearance of five young men that took place on one hot August evening in 1978 in Newark, New Jersey. And those five men were named Melvin Pittman, Ernest Taylor, Alvin Turner, Randy Johnson, and Michael McDowell. Now, these boys ranged in ages from 16 to 17, and they were local neighborhood kids. They were said to be really the best of friends. Where you saw one, you saw them all. The name Clinton Avenue 5 
unfortunately is derived from the address where the boys were last seen entering into the back of a pickup truck of a local contractor by the name of Lee Anthony Evans. And it's reported that the boys had done odd jobs for Evans in the past. So he was basically someone that they knew, and for all intents and purposes, it seems like they trusted him, right, to have gone into the back of his truck and driven away with him. But unfortunately, Chris, when they jumped into Evans' truck that night, that was the last time that the boys were ever seen or heard from again. All five of them seemingly vanished. There were actually eyewitnesses of the boys getting into the back of Evans' truck, so that's how we have that information. More specifically, Chris, it was noted that he was bringing them to his former residence of 256 Camden Street in Newark to his new residence, and apparently the boys were supposed to help him move some boxes from the old place to the new place. And as we come to find out by confession by someone else down the road that the last stop that the boys ever made was indeed 256 Candom Street. You got to ask yourself here, what could possibly have gone wrong? If they had a relationship with Evans and they had worked with him in the past, you know, they seemed comfortable around him. So there didn't appear to be any kind of animosity or bizarre behavior that anybody accounted for. But there was one story that we pick up down the road was that and this is all alleged, that Evans, in addition to owning the construction business, was dealing pot on the side, dealing marijuana. As the story goes, when the boys were doing one of their jobs for him, he noticed that a pound of the marijuana that he was trying to sell had gone missing. And Evans, having found this out, assumed it was the boys, the five boys that had stolen the marijuana. And he essentially took them to this house to scare the living shit out of them, right? That's how the story goes. But we don't know, Chris, because we have never heard from the boys ever again. Now, Chris, we get all this information by a gentleman that had later confessed to the murder of these five young men. Now, we're going to get into all that down the road. But to build up to that, we need to talk about how this could even happen, right? You have five young men that were going to a known location that seemingly vanished. What could have happened? That's the thing. We don't know, and we only have the information from one confession. And that confession is from a man by the name of Philander Hampton. Now, Hampton says that he was there at 256 Camden Street the night the boys went missing. He said that it was his job to hold two of the boys at gunpoint while Evans went and rounded up the other three young men. So already we have a discrepancy, right? There are various eyewitnesses saying that all five boys were in the back of his truck. Now you have Philander Hampton who's saying that he was at the residence waiting for Evans to show up with the boys. Evans shows up with two boys. He holds them at gunpoint and then Evans goes back and tries to round up the other three. This is the thing that's so maddening about this case, Chris, is all of the discrepancies. We're going to come to find out that we have a confession, a conviction, and an acquittal. And still no answers to this day, okay? That's how insane this case is. And the fact that it is basically just disappearing in, in, into the atmosphere with no further coverage anymore makes it all the more disturbing. But as for right now, let's go back to 256 Candom Street, where Philander Hampton says that at this point in time, he's holding two of the boys at gunpoint, okay? So we'll go off of Philander's story for right now. He says then Evan leaves and rounds up the other three boys. So it's at that point 
all five boys are being held at gunpoint. They're being questioned about the stolen marijuana. Now, this is the part that gets even more disturbing, Chris. Apparently, all five of the teenage boys were led upstairs to a third-floor bedroom closet. At that point, they were locked inside by Evans. This is coming from Philander's testimony that Evans nailed the door shut and locked them into the closet. All right. You know, a couple questions already, but we'll get to that. And at that point, Evans has five gallons of gasoline in his house. He pours the gasoline all over the house, lights a match, and leaves, leaving the boys there to die in this fire. Unfortunately, going off of Flanders' testimony, which is basically all we have, the boys perished that night in a fire at 256 Candom Street. And as I said, Chris, nothing really is as it seems in this case. It's not so much black and white as it appears to be, because to this date, the boys' remains have never been found. And get this, the case remained cold for 30-plus years. And remember that confession I talked about from Philander? That didn't come right away. That did not happen in 1978. It didn't happen in 88. It didn't happen in 98. It happened in 2008. And that is when Philander, who was in prison at the time and being interrogated for an unrelated charge, actually confessed to the murder of the Clinton Avenue Five. Not only did he say he did it, but as I said before, he indicated that Evans was there himself and was actually the one who lit the match that set the home on fire. Let's mention, too, that Philander is the cousin of Lee Anthony Evans. Yes. So we're not talking about just some rando worker or somebody that was in the neighborhood that just had a grudge out on Evans and is throwing it on him or something. We're talking about a family member here. Now, we don't know the relationship between Philander and Lee Anthony Evans. Obviously, I would think Philander didn't tell Lee Anthony Evans that he was going to do this. Obviously, (laughs) you know, this was not only 30 years down the road, but he was also going in to see the police about something completely unrelated. So for whatever reason he was in there, which we don't know, but it involved a 13-hour interrogation that turned into him spilling his beans about something he did supposedly 30 years prior it's just like a big what and i'm sure the police were also like uh they probably who knows if they even heard of the case you know what i mean because this was buried well let's examine that for a second chris you know it's funny because i I look at it from a a, a different vantage point because if you have philander in there and as it stated this is a 13 hour interrogation so this is not some shoplifting or dui type crime this had to be something very serious (laughs) that philander was in there for at the time unrelated to the disappearance of the clinton avenue five right unless it was something that could have potentially revealed information and he decided to spill his guts other than that it would just be purely out of just guilt? Well, this is my thinking because it's it was reported in quite a few places that there was another cousin of Evans and Hampton by the name of Maurice Woody Olds, who was one of the original suspects back in 78. But, and, and get this, he died apparently of natural causes in 2008, the same year that Hampton confessed so something's just not adding up. And now I'm looking at it from a different vantage point as, you know, the police are interrogating him, they're breaking him down. And, you know, maybe something was offered in terms of a, a, a plea bargain 
in a, a roundabout way where if you confess and you give us the names and implicate Evans and tell us what you know, we can set you up with a lighter sentence, dismiss the charge that you're here for now, and we can all uh, get something out of this deal. And I say this because, Chris, we come to find out, not to skip ahead too far, Philander Hampton confessed to the murders, pleaded guilty, and was sentenced to 10 years. Okay, so you talk about five murders or being the accomplice to five murders 10 years for five murders and do you want your blood to boil chris as part of his plea he was given a fifteen thousand dollar relocation fee so let's break that down for a second five dead teenagers a 10-year sentence and a fifteen thousand dollar relocation grant at the end of that sentence could you fucking imagine how the families of these boys must feel it's certainly crazy but we're we're talking about Somebody who confessed to being involved with the murders, he is not himself confessing to the one who actually murdered the boys. I guess from the police standpoint is, okay, we'll lessen your sentence if you give us information or some way to indict the person who's really involved in it. What I'm curious is, and I I don't know how this works with making deals, and I know deals can always be a little fishy when it comes to working with plea bargains and stuff like that but i guess there was no stipulation that if it the information he gave led to the arrest and prosecution maybe because obviously the deal went through well it did and we're going to find out chris that the information did indeed lead to the arrest of lee anthony evans and Apparently, there was enough info there that they were able to arrest him and hold him on a $5 million bail. But that $5 million bail didn't last long because obviously he would have been stuck there. Who the hell can afford that to get out, right? It was at that point that Judge Peter Vasquez reduced Evans' bail from $5 million to $1.25 million, essentially saying that the prosecution's case seemed very difficult to prove Evans had no criminal record, and he basically was an upstanding member of his community. So it's at that point that Vasquez lowered the bail and then lowered it further to $950,000 so that Evans' family could afford to get him out on bail until his trial started. So Evans and Hampton were both arrested on the 22nd of March. Mm Mm-hmm. So Evans is not released from jail until August 20th. Yes, and you want to tell us what August 20th is? Well, this is the kind of messed up thing. I'm sure this was sheer coincidence, but it's kind of a slap in the face of the victim's family. He's released on the day, the anniversary, up to the day, 32nd anniversary of the teen's murders. Can you fucking well, believe that? The same day just seems like a slap. The, the, the person that the family thinks is responsible, the person who's being held, is released on bail, who had the bail lowered three times, mind you, is released from prison on the 32nd anniversary of the boys' disappearances. Wrap your fucking head around that. All this is coming off of the confession of Philander Hampton, who didn't have the best reputation himself, okay? So he's been in and out of prison. As we said, he was being interrogated for another crime at the time that he confessed to this crime. So it begs the question there, why was his sentence so light? Why was he only given a 10-year sentence? He didn't have to go to trial because, as we said, he pleaded guilty. And we're going to see what happens to him down the road with his little $15,000 relocation grant. 
But let's leave him on the back burner for right now, and let's move on to Lee Anthony Evans' trial, which took place in November of 2011. And the weird thing here, dude, is that Evans represented himself. Now, we hear about this all the time, and often with disastrous results for the defendant. And it seems that before the trial even began, the prosecution and the families of the missing boys were elated that they had their man. To, to quote the acting prosecutor of Essex County himself, he said that the mystery has now been solved. Lee Anthony Evans is the prime suspect. We have him in custody. He is on trial. We got him. But it did not turn out that way. You look at all this information, how could Evans have possibly defended himself from this? The, the, the big thing in his favor is there's nothing tying him other than Philander's words to this case. He even says when, when defending himself, he's like, look, I've never left. I've been here all these years. I'm still here. I still live in the area. Why? I haven't run away. I haven't gone anywhere. What reason would I have to stay, basically? If I did this, why would I stick around? Uh, not, not that that is saying that he's not guilty, but it's basically saying that he, in plain sight, had the boys come into his van to help out. Why Why would you do that, basically, if you had planned on murdering somebody where we're in plain sight? And, and obviously, we know this because of witnesses stating that he took the boys in to do some odd jobs. So he's basically saying, I have nothing to hide. And he makes some valid points, right? If you're looking at it from that side, from his side or his family side, why would he pick the boys up in daylight in his work truck in broad daylight, as he says, right? Well, that's the thing. He's basically saying, why would I be such a fool as to, in plain sight, have all these witnesses see me take the boys and then end up killing them? Of course, he would be a prime suspect, which he was. He was the prime suspect when they originally originally went missing. Well, generally, the last person that you're seen with is the prime suspect, right? I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. You can see both sides of the story here. And Evans was able to further his defense because the police actually used ground-penetrating radar at 256 Cannon Street to search for remains. And they found nothing. No bone fragments, no DNA, no piece of evidence whatsoever. And granted, it is 30-plus years later, but you would imagine that there would be something left over time, right? Possibly. I mean, I don't know how it works, especially when you're dealing with fires and if it was like a a raging fire. But you can't help but wonder here, thinking on what Philander said, Philander being a cousin and also Maurice, the one who passed away in 2008, another other cousin. Why would he just come up with this absurd story? What what did he have to gain from this other than we're we're, now we're mentioning that maybe that this was out of guilt. He couldn't live with the guilt anymore. Or was something so bad, maybe not even related to the murder, was something so bad going to happen to Philander that he used this as a potential way to divert attention elsewhere? Well, now 30 years later, all of a sudden you feel bad about it? Right, and only at the time where you're being being interrogated for something else that we don't even know about, and it was apparently serious enough to have a 13-hour interrogation about it. And it makes sense right now because if you look at it, you know, even if you're just the accomplice, okay, you held the gun, you are still participating in the murders of five teenage boys, okay? Five kids, dude. That's that's a that's a mass killing, right? 
Oh, yeah, you're going away for forever. Forever. Break that down. That's two years per child. Ten years. And then you're given a $15,000 relocation fee. Something doesn't add up. Here, here's this. Here's the crazy part. And correct me if I'm wrong. Philander could have killed them all. And he could have said that somebody else did it. And he said, I can tell you who did it. Yeah. And then he gets a plea deal. That- so basically he confesses-ish to a murder, but ends up getting only 10 years and some dough to get relocated because he made up the story that somebody else did. He could have been the one that had, that, that killed him. Absolutely. Anything's a possibility in this case. And now we got to go back and look at what 1970s Newark looked like, late 1970s, right? Now, there was a huge economic downturn during that point in time, and that, that was flowing not only in New Jersey, but throughout New York City as well. You know, the Bronx, Brooklyn, there were very little economic opportunities. The middle class was fleeing. There were racial tensions. There was tension with the police. Basically, you had groups of apartment buildings where the landlords were losing money hand over fist. And in order to recoup some of those losses, they were setting their apartment buildings and houses on fire to collect the insurance money. At this point, they weren't renting them. They were dilapidated and abandoned. The buildings were being filled with the homeless population. Drug use was going on inside the building. You can imagine there was faulty wiring in regards to the buildings having been left abandoned. So you may ask, how does this come into play? Well, it does, big time. Because as I said, there were fires all over the place. And the fire department and the police department just didn't have the manpower. As a matter of fact, they were told not to report to fires that were taking place in abandoned buildings. So if the boys were in this abandoned building at 256 Candom Street, which it sounded like it was Evans' former residence, but maybe it was abandoned at that point. We don't know. It would make sense that the police and the fire departments would never show up, giving you an opportunity just to wash your hands clean of this, right? Just let the fire burn, and when it fizzles out, the structure implodes, and it's just left there for decades or until they sell it and move on to a new structure. You know, we're talking about over 30 years later where if he did, in fact, do this and and had them in the closet, it probably wouldn't be that difficult to remove any evidence. Yeah, especially if you return after the fire and you're cleaning out the property, it would be kind of easy to uh, dispose of any remaining evidence. It wasn't very hard for Evans to defend himself. We knew off the bat here, even the judge said, that you have a really difficult case here you know, you're, you're, you're stretching because they didn't have enough on Evans for it to be, you know, a solid case. So it was pretty easy for him to just say, look, I'm not a murderer. I'm still here. I've, I've stayed here after all these years. I have nothing to run from. But in fact, like you said, it would have been so easy for him to actually do this and get away with it, that of course he would need to leave. And by not leaving would even be a great way to prove his case like he is doing right now. So it's not to say that Evans is is innocent. No, it's a mind fuck any way you look at it, right? Like if he leaves, oh, he's guilty. If he stays, oh, maybe he's not. If he stays, right. maybe he's guilty. You know, if he leaves, uh, you know, he, he wanted to get away from the false allegations. So any way you cut it, you could kind of make it work to the way you want it to. Right. And he's got time on his hands he's got all this time so the more time that passes by the less likely 
there's digging and stuff. The more time he has to build a story or do whatever, and and who who knows if if he did in fact do it, he probably had this whole situation, this whole story built up for years, and he was like, I know exactly what I'm going to say, and I'm never going to get pinned. Dude, you think about it. Okay, so you talk about clearing out a, a location of all the evidence. We're not talking about one person or, or two people. Dude, these are five young men, five human beings that you would have to remove all that evidence. I mean, surely it had to be a task to remove all that. So I look at it both ways, and I just can't make heads or tails as to what I believe. I, I know, I, and it's the only thing that is making me believe that Evans is in fact involved in this case, other than Philander trying to save his own ass for some reason, is that Philander's came up with this story and with detail too. It wasn't, you know, like, oh, you know, my cousin, he's the one who did it. You know, he gave exactly how he did it. And was this building not burned to the ground? Well, from all reports, it was. So right there... That's like, wow, he's not lying. The, the, the building was burned to the ground. This could make sense. He was the last person to see them. He would have been easily able to round all five of them up because they trusted him. You just have to feel for the families here, right? I mean, you talk about five different families, and I'm going to go into what some of the family members had to say. Debbie Wilson, who was uh, Ricky Pittman, Melvin Pittman's sister, she says that, uh, and, and, and this is heartbreaking, I quote, to be told that your brother was held at gunpoint and led into an abandoned house and that house was set on fire, that's a horrible thing to learn. That's just a horrible way to die. It's like hell. This is staying with this family regardless. There's, there's no such thing as closure for this. All right. So say Evans is convicted. You think he's the one that did it. But it doesn't add to closure. It gives you maybe an answer, but... There's still so many questions involved in this case. And it, it goes even further than that, dude. There's um, there's another uh, quote that I want to read here. And this is an interesting one. This is from Ernest Taylor's uh, brother. He said that, and, and I quote here too, in regards to Evans, he told me he did it. He said it wasn't just him. There were some more people involved. He said that he had become a born-again Christian, so he had to tell the truth. So he is saying that Evans confessed to him Evans later denied that. But is Evans a sociopath where he actually did go and confess and realize that there wasn't enough evidence against him that he would get acquitted? Who knows? Imagine that shit. Because why would the brother lie? Here's the other thing which we've we've brought light to. The third cousin. The third cousin that happens to be dead due to natural causes the same year that this confession comes out. Did Philander have something to do with his death? <laughs> or, or Evans? Who knows? Maybe, maybe. Maybe Maurice would have been a way to corroborate the whole thing. Well, because remember, Maurice was the original suspect. Did Maurice kill himself? It says he's died. Who knows? Of, well, they say well, that said natural causes. But, yeah. So, but, I, but how easy could it be to... Like everything else in this uh, case, take it with a grain of fucking salt. Exactly. Who knows how, how in-depth it was. I gotta tell you, I would have been digging real deep into the around him, around Maurice's Seriously, life. Seriously, man, because look at it, and, and, you know, think about how the time period and time frame in which this event took place plays such a big role, right? Newark, late 70s, no CCTV, we talked about that economic downturn, everything's set on fire, 
police and firefighters are told not to report to abandoned building fires where this crime supposedly took place. As it looks now, it turned out to be the perfect crime. And sadly, too, like you mentioned, the, the racial time mm-hmm. here, that's probably another factor, sadly. I don't doubt that for one second, you know? Yeah. It was a time where whoever did this probably knew that it wouldn't kick up too much dust. And <laughs> look at it. It hasn't. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember, like you said, I've never heard of this case before. And the last time it was mentioned was only because of this this confession. And then even since then, there hasn't been any and mention of it. And that was back in 2008. And I'm, I'm looking at articles here from 2010. I mean, I'm not finding anything else. I mean, I guess they're, they're looking at it now that they had their confession. Philander served his time, which you're going to get to in a second. And uh, I guess they just want to, you know, put a pretty little bow on it and move on, right? But I don't know how you can when, and I keep going back to this, the fucking 10-year sentence for five murders. Okay, so you want to confess to it? We can't get Evans to confess and we can't get a conviction so then you pay the fucking price you can you confess to it you pay the fucking price of life in prison we come to find out chris philander hampton was released on february 27th 2017 so four years ago he was released with a fifteen thousand dollar present man god how fucking frustrating it is i'm frustrated with not just you know the way this turned out, but almost at the same time, like the police department, absolutely, or the, the prosecutors, the prosecution. Remember, I quoted that Essex County prosecutor. They thought this was a slam dunk. I mean, they had a confession from Evans' cousin, Flander, accusing Evans of murdering the boys, and Evans was one of the original suspects, along with his other cousin Maurice. So they were basically celebrating before Evans was ever convicted, and he was acquitted. The only thing that they could have done was pressure Evan so much into just admitting it. But he didn't. He stood his ground. And convincingly so. He didn't even have to be that convincing, I guess, because what did they have on him? They had nothing. Nothing. They had absolutely nothing. Well, you know, I wanted to bring up this one little piece of uh, info, too. In 96, apparently, the police got so desperate for answers that... Uh, a psychic, <laughs> believe it or not. Oh, God. Yeah, well, Chris, Chris. <laughs> this psychic, uh, quote unquote, and that's, I'm not, now, now I'm just being bullied by Chris here, uh, <laughs> spoke of visions that she had of uh, teeth that she had seen. And they were, you know, these fiery revelations that, you know, about fire and teeth being buried. Well, I mean, let's go back to the landscape of late 1970s Newark. How fucking hard is it to envision a fire, Chris? And finding out that the place that the kids went missing was set on fire. That's actually interesting, because we didn't know that until 2008. Oh, I stand corrected then. <laughs> Maybe I'm uh, being a little bit of a naysayer. Yeah, but, I mean, from from what we, 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 we gather here, I mean, the fires were, were rampant all through Newark. I sure as shit know they were in the Bronx and Brooklyn, because, Chris, during the 1977 World Series... The New York Yankees versus your hometown team, the Los Angeles Dodgers. What? Howard, yeah, Howard Cosell actually saw they were. You know, remember how they used to have the Goodyear blimp going around the stadiums during a World Series? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so when they were flying above Yankee Stadium, 
this is in 77, you know, around that same time frame where, like I said, the landlords were just setting all these places on fire, all these dilapidated buildings on fire to collect the insurance. And it was being showcased around the biggest sporting event in the world, the World Series, Yankees versus Dodgers. And Cosell says, famously, the Bronx is burning. News item, Keith. I've just had word that that fire we've shown in the South Bronx, first to pitch, wild off. That fire in the South Bronx, fortunately, no lives in but that shit was going on all over the place. That shit was going on in the Bronx. It was down in Brooklyn. So, I mean, that's just an interesting little piece of historical evidence that goes with this whole case, man. The city was war-torn at that point. So anything could have been hidden anywhere. Well, I guess there's really only one thing left to say here, Bill. Mm-hmm. What's that? What do you think? Uh, let's see. What do I think? Uh, I think that... Uh, Dude, I don't know. I, I I really don't know. I can go both ways on it. I mean, I see Evan's defense saying that why would he pick them up in broad daylight and be the last one seen with them? Why would he be so brazen? My guess is that he took the boys, wanted to scare the shit out of them. One of the boys probably tried to defend themselves, got shot accidentally or something along those lines. He knew at that point there was no going back and had to kill all of them and set the uh, house on fire to uh, get rid of any evidence. And knowing how the police and the firefighters weren't showing up to these abandoned building fires kind of was in the clear. I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense to me, but I don't know. I mean, I could truly go either way on it. But Chris, what says you? I think Evans was involved. They were last seen getting into his van. What coincidence would have happened... We're talking about the same day. Mm-hmm. The same day they went missing. The last time they were seen was with Evans, right? Sometimes it's easiest to hide things in plain sight. Well, that's what I mean. And, and that's what what he's kind of using as his defense, too. He's saying, I didn't go anywhere. I've been here for years. Why, why would I? I haven't tried to run away. For him to have been the last person that anyone saw the boys with, and for his own cousin to say that he murdered them, and I'm not saying that obviously can't lead to a, a, a conviction and to a you know to him getting sentenced because obviously it didn't. But there's just too much around those three cousins for there not to be foul play, for there not to be fault on one or all of them. If Evans is not involved in this, I would be shocked personally. And I'll tell you this, Flinder was in the mitten of shit until he got caught for that other crime. That's the other thing, too. What was so bad that he did, that he used admitting a murder to divert the attention of the police? Or was it truly just his guilt came out and he had to tell them then well, and there? If he was so guilty, he should have taken that $15,000 uh, and dispersed it to uh, the families. Yeah, or if he was so riddled with guilt, he would have confessed prior Seriously. and not happened to confess during a time where the police were already looking into him. So, uh, Chris, that is it. That is the case of the Clinton Avenue 5. I mean, this is just a terrible tragedy, and unfortunately, nobody really ever paid the price. Woo, this one fucking bummed me out. Yeah, well, I guess we can only hope that karma is out there, because that seems to be the only way justice will be served. And, uh... Karma is running behind. We are running out of time <laughs> on this one. This is like 35 plus years later now. 
almost yeah. 40 years. God. But uh, all right, bud. That's it. Uh, let's wrap it up. And next next week we got to come back with something fun. We we, we just have to. I mean, something a little more fun. Maybe a haunting. Um, something. Yeah. Around, something to lighten the mood. Something uh, revolving around your twin uh, Zach Baggins. Uh, I, I don't know. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Fuck you. So, so let me give the rundown. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook at the Between the Cracks podcast page, or if you want to get up close and personal with me, you can uh, reach me on uh, Instagram, and that's Between yeah. the Cracks. <laughs> oh, no, not that close. <laughs> and that is the Between the Cracks podcast. Uh, Chris, what else do I want to say? We have the Patreon page. If anybody wants to become a patron, uh, that will be... Teespring, a- baby. So, yep, yeah, uh, the Patreon uh, page will be in the links. You get all sorts of shit, mugs, stickers, shoutouts on shows, requesting shows. Uh, I just heard from Faye. She just got her mug all the ways out in England. Baby, we drop ship all over the world. So, uh, according to Faye, the, the mug arrived in one piece, and I really hope that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> the handle came in a second yeah, package. <laughs> it's on its way, <laughs> Faye. Uh, but uh, also, yes, the uh, Teespring shop, if you want to get any merch related to this show, you can find that in the show notes also. That's teespring.com. And the name of our shop is BTC. Just put BTC into the search engine on Teespring, and we will pop up. Ha! Ah, now, with all that said, Chris, why don't we take all of our takes and get the hell on out of here and wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land the fondest. Oh, farewell. Oh, it's done! It's done! Oh, 87 minutes. Go fuck yourself. This is it. I'm not, I'm not, we're not doing this ever again. This is it. It's good.